Ladies and gentlemen, from the Hilton Hotel in downtown Toronto, welcome to the season opener of the 112th season of the Empire Club of Canada. For those of you just joining us through either our webcast, our podcast, or on television through Rogers Cable, welcome to this meeting. We'd, uh, before our distinguished speakers introduced today, it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to our head table guests. I'd like to ask each guest to uh, rise for a brief moment and be seated after your name is called, and I'd ask that the audience please refrain from applauding until all head, guests, head table guests have been introduced. So, starting from the audience's far right, Ms. M.J. Perry, Vice President, owner of Mr. Discount Limited and a director of the Empire Club of Canada. The Honourable Dalton McGuinty, the 24th Premier of the Province of Ontario. Mr. Mark Fisher, Chief Executive Officer, the Council of the Great Lakes Region. Mr. Duncan Hawthorne, the President and CEO uh, of Bruce Power. The Honorable Bob Shirelli, this province's Minister of Energy. Welcome, Minister. And now from the audience's far left, Ms. Eleanor McMahon, MPP for Burlington. Mr. James Hogarth, President, Provincial Building and Construction Trades Council of Ontario. Mr. Chris Hughes, the President of Lake Energy Products. And our guest speaker, Senator Evan Bai, former Governor of Indiana and U.S. Senator, who will be more properly introduced in a few moments. My name is Gordon McIver. I'm the Executive Director of the National Executive Forum on Public Property. Ladies and gentlemen, your head table guests. Now, we have a, a great honor today to have many members of our Legislative Assembly in the room, so I'd like to recognize them all, as is our tradition. If you would just please uh, rise and wave, let us know where you are. Let's start with Marie-France Lalonde, MPP, Ottawa, Orleans. Eleanor McMahon, we've introduced. Bill Walker, MPP, Bruce Gray Owen Sound. Vic Fideli, MPP, Nipissing. John Yakabuski, MPP, Renfrew, Nipissing, and Pembroke. Lisa Thompson, MPP, Huron, Bruce. Michael Harris, MPP, Kitchener, Conestoga. Lori Scott, MPP, Halliburton, Kawartha Lakes, Brock. Lisa McLeod, MPP, Nepean, Carlton. Jim McDonnell, MPP, Stormont Dundas, South Glengarry. Randy Pettapiece, MPP for Perth Wellington. Norm Miller, MPP, Perry Sound, Muskoka. Todd Smith, MPP, Prince Edward Hastings. Taras Natishak, MPP for Essex. Hope I got that pronunciation right. John Vantoff, MPP for Timis Camming. Jagmeet Singh, the MPP for Bramley Gore Malton. Cindy Forster, MPP Welland. And last but definitely not least, Catherine Fife, my own MPP, Kitchener Waterloo. Welcome. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, lots of very important people uh, who helped to run our government today in the room. And uh, I want to start by introducing you to Duncan Hawthorne, the President and CEO of Bruce Power, who will do the honor today of introducing us to our guest speaker. Duncan. 
Thank you, Gordon, and thank you to the Empire Club. I have a great pleasure today of, of introducing to you our speaker for today's lunch, Senator Evan Bai. I've spent the morning with him and, and learned a lot already about his knowledge of the of the political system, but also his knowledge in, in this particular sector. So, uh, and you know, it's a great pleasure to read such an impressive resume. So, if you bear with me, you'll get a sense of the man and and his uh, experiences, and, and no doubt it'll be reflected in his comments in a few moments. Senator Evan Bai is a former two-term governor of Indiana and U.S. Senator and currently serves as strategic advisor to Maguire Woods and the leadership on nuclear matters, which is a group dedicated to inform the public about the clear benefits that nuclear energy provides. Senator Bai had a very distinguished career in public service, being elected overwhelmingly as governor and senator in his home state of Indiana. As a moderate Democrat, he is a leader working in a bipartisan manner to seek consensus on several key issues, including financial services reform and health care. He was also a leading voice advocating fiscal restraint on government spending. Senator Bai served on several committees, including armed services, banking, housing and urban affairs, energy and natural resources, small business and entrepreneurship, ageing and silent intelligence. Prior to being elected to the Senate, he was elected to two terms of Governor Indiana, where he enacted welfare reform, cut taxes, and brought fiscal discipline to the state's budget. He also served as Secretary of State to Indiana from 1986 to 1989. Senator Bai also currently serves as a senior advisor to Apollo Global Management in New York and on the board of directors for Fifth Third Bank, Marathon Petroleum Corporation, Berry Plastics Corporation, RLI Lodging Trust, and McGraw-Hill Education. He also serves on the advisory board for the Central Intelligence Agency. The Senator Bai today will discuss the important role nuclear power plays in the Great Lakes region as a key source of reliable, affordable electricity while growing the economy and keeping the air we breathe clean. It's my pleasure to introduce Senator Evan Bai. Well, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. And, uh, Duncan, thank you for that uh, very generous uh, eulogy you just provided me. I uh, don't ordinarily get to hear things uh, quite that nice while you're still around to appreciate them. Uh, I'm reminded, and uh, uh, I don't always get introductions quite as nice as uh, Duncan's, and I don't take them for granted. Uh, currently in the United States, if you believe the public opinion polls, and, you know, if you look back at the history of the United States, uh, uh, skepticism toward our Congress is sort of part of our DNA. But it's reached uh, kind of a pinnacle here in the last year or two with uh, the uh, Congress's job approval rating botting them out at 12 percent. I think it's all the way up to 15 or 16 percent now. So I was home uh, in my state of Indiana not long ago, and Duncan, I was approached to, uh, by one of my constituents, and he said to me, he said, uh, he said, Evan, I want to ask you a question. I said, sure. And he said, do you know the definition of the word politics. Well, I was pretty confident I did, but I thought I'd play along. And I said, no, tell me, what is it? And with a uh, gleam in his eye, he said, well, it's really very simple. It comes from the Greek word poly, meaning many, and the English word ticks, meaning small, blood-sucking insects. <laughs> so I don't think he was one of the 15 or 16 percent giving me a positive job approval uh, rating. 
but uh, so thank you for your graciousness uh, here today. And I want to thank uh, all of you for attending. I know you're very busy. You could be other places. Gordon, I want to thank the club uh, for hosting this here today. Uh, Dalton, I want to thank you for your years of service. Uh, having been governor of my state, I know that's a challenging position, and the citizens of, uh, of this community were benefited by your leadership for many, many years. So thank you for joining us today. And Bob, thank you for your presence. Uh, you have a, a big portfolio, important issues to handle, and so thank you for uh, being here. And to this, for the um, members of your uh, legislative body who are here, I want to thank you for your presence. I had the... Uh, uh, interesting pleasure of attending uh, the opening of your question period today, and I couldn't help but think that a number of my uh, former colleagues in our Congress couldn't make it in a system like that. If you had to actually stand up and answer questions on the record in front of the television cameras, you're brave uh, individuals. But I, going back to my days as governor, my legislature was divided. Uh, I'm a member of our Democratic Party, as Duncan indicated. My state Senate was, uh, we have a bicameral legislative body, uh, not like you do. My state Senate was um, uh, controlled by the other party all eight years I was governor. Uh, my House of Representatives, my first two years, was 50-50, equally divided. Then my party had a majority for four years. Then uh, the other party had a majority for uh, the next two years. And so I pretty quickly deduced that if we were going to get anything done, we had to sit down and work out our differences, and the legislature was going to need to be a, a full uh, participating partner in moving Indiana forward. So I have a very healthy respect for the role that you play as parliamentarians and want to thank you for the opportunity to meet with several of you earlier today and for your taking the time to join me here at lunch today. Now, in the United States Senate, uh, your average senator has only <clears throat> cleared his throat uh, after about half an hour. So I won't do that uh, to you here today unless there's just a great uh, groundswell for a very lengthy set of remarks. Uh, maybe what I'll do, Gordon, if it's all right, uh, is speak for about uh, 10 minutes uh, about the topic at hand here today. And then what I'd really rather do is have a dialogue so they can serve lunch and I can respond to your questions because I'd rather, a lot rather interact with you rather than just talk at you uh, today if that's, if that's okay. I'd really rather take, uh, take questions and we can talk about the role that nuclear power plays about American politics, about any number of things. Um, uh, speaking of which, I was uh, recounting earlier, I was in Saudi Arabia a couple years ago and w was going in to meet with the finance minister of that country. And there on the wall of his very lavish office was a large flat screen television tuned to CNN. Uh, and he was intently following the uh, presidential political campaign in the United States. And I asked him, I said, well, this is, you know, we're halfway around the world. You're taking a real interest in American politics. And he said, well, yeah, there's an important reason for that. I said, what? And he said, well, if we make mistakes here in Saudi Arabia, it's bad for our country. You make mistakes in America, it's bad for everybody. So um, perhaps if you're interested in talking about what's going on uh, in my country, I'd be happy to do that some here today as well. So uh, we have a lot in common. My home state of Indiana, six and a half million people, our largest trading partner by far is Canada. So we have strong economic in interests. Historically, uh, the strongest pillar of Indiana's economy has been manufacturing. Going, back, We make more steel than any state in the United States of America. We produce autos and auto parts, uh, home appliances. You kind of go down the list. But that, and those are good-paying jobs historically. But that part of our uh, economy has been under challenge for the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, if you were to go to Lake County, Indiana, which abuts Lake Michigan, we're part of the Great Lakes uh, you know, Governors Association because of our proximity to Lake Michigan. Back in my father's time, when he was a United States Senator from Indiana, 
we had 90,000, 100,000 citizens of Indiana making their livings in the steel mill. Those were good jobs with full benefits and retirement uh, benefits, et cetera, et cetera. Today, we produce more steel than ever before. It is globally competitive, higher quality, and instead of 90,000, it's probably 9,000. And that's just a brief indication that I know you're familiar with here in Toronto and Ontario about what's happened, the challenges in a globalized economy that has faced uh, the manufacturing sector. But a lot like you in our state, we've diversified. We've gotten into you know, IT, biotech, other things to try and grow our economy. You're doing, uh, you're doing the same thing. Uh, we have something personal in common. I relayed to uh, some of you earlier. My wife, for six years, served on the International Joint Commission. She was an appointee of President Clinton, helping to oversee the uh, important issues involving the Great Lakes and the St. Lawrence Seaway. When I come back next time, I bring her with me, and that will help the retail aspect of your economy immensely, although it may adversely affect the Bai family uh, uh, ledger. But uh, so she became really uh, fell in love with your country and became expert in many things uh, uh, Canadian. And finally, we face some of the challenges going forward together, principally in a globalized uh, economy that's more competitive and demanding than ever before. How do we create good-paying jobs with wages that will support middle-class families? How do we attract investment and capital to Toronto, to Ontario, to Indiana, and to elsewhere? What is our comparative advantage? What can we offer that other places can't so that our citizens can build their lives and pursue their dreams in a way that every generation of Canadians and every generation of Americans has come to expect? How do we do that in the world uh, today? There are a number of things that go into that. We can get into that in question and answer period. But one of those things that's just indispensable in the manufacturing sector for sure, but increasingly in other parts of the economy as well, is a a dependable, affordable source of power to make the economy go. Without it, you know, you're just going to struggle and have a difficult time. Consumers will suffer. Businesses will suffer. Workers will suffer without the job creation and the growth. We all struggle without that source of power. And one of the challenges we're facing today in a globalized world where we care about climate change, we care about CO2 emissions, how do we produce that energy in a way that is consistent with meeting our environmental and our CO2 goals as well? Frankly, I think my country, we can learn something from the progress you've made uh, uh, here in your province, where uh, some time ago, I think starting in, what, 2001, you began to reduce your reliance upon coal and look toward other sources of energy in order to get your CO2 footprint down. One of the ways you did that was uh, by expanding your uh, uh, reliance upon nuclear energy, which is, of course, zero uh, zero carbon footprint. We in the States are now facing a similar situation. We were not able in the Senate when I was there and still to this day to pass a cap-and-trade law, so there's no legislative framework for dealing with uh, climate change and CO2 emissions. But the President of the United States has made this a legacy item, and he has moved forward with the regulatory mechanism through our Clean Air Act of capping emissions of CO2, regulating uh, CO2 emissions as a pollutant, and now saying to each of the 50 states, you need to get these uh, uh, emissions under control. Here are the targets you need to meet over the next five years, 10 years, 15, uh, 15 years, and states will have the flexibility to meet those targets in ways that they see fit. No two states will choose to do that exactly alike. But one of the things we're struggling with, and the point of me mentioning all that is that currently 62%, almost two-thirds, 
of the carbon-free emissions of power generation in the United States are nuclear, two-thirds. Some of our plants are facing challenges. They're ending the, uh, uh, the end of their useful life. Uh, the low price of natural gas, sluggish economic growth, it's a variety of factors. If we allow these plants to begin to go offline, and you face a decision about uh, continuing yours, if, if, speaking for the states again, if we were allow these to atrophy and go offline, re removing our major source of zero carbon generation, there is no practical way for us to meet the energy needs that we uh, need to uh, generate for our economy while also meeting our carbon and our environmental uh, aspirations as well. So nuclear is a way for us to come together and do both, be environmentally responsible in a pro-growth environment that enables us to create good jobs for middle-class families by growing our uh, economy. Uh, as I mentioned, it's uh, two-thirds or close to two-thirds of the zero carbon emissions. We're about 20 percent of our overall uh, electric footprint. Uh, you here in the province are a bit higher than that. Uh, the jobs that are generated by nuclear uh, are good-paying jobs, uh, paying above the average, not only in the construction uh, trades, uh, but uh, for those who run the plants on a permanent basis. So at a time in both our countries when we're focused on stagnant wages and income inequality, the nuclear industry uh, generates good-paying jobs that allow middle-class families uh, to, uh, to prosper. I'm pleased to uh, uh, share with you the results of uh, the report that was issued today, along with the, we have some officials here with the uh, Council of Great Lakes uh, Region, along with our power uh, plant, Duncan, thank you for your sponsorship, and uh, the trades, the building and construction trade unions that show for, uh, for Canada and for this, prov for this province in particular, the results are very much the same. Thousands of good-paying jobs, a reliable source of power in a way that is environmentally responsible and consistent with your commitment to using less coal, meeting your environmental targets in a pro-growth uh, environment. South of the border, uh, we tend to take uh, a lot of this for granted. You know, my average constituent, and frankly, uh, me, before I really delved into this issue, I'd get up in the morning, flip on the white light switch. I didn't really think about where the electricity came from. I depended on it, counted on it, but never gave, gave much thought to what made that possible. Uh, you're a hardier breed here than we are uh, south of the border. We had a particularly bad winter by our standards last winter. We had what was called snowmageddon. Uh, some people called it the snowpocalypse. And so uh, the temperatures were very low in some parts of our country, the northeast in particular. A couple of the gas-fired power plants were close to going offline, ceasing to operate. They could not operate at those kind of sustained low temperatures, which meant we were on the cusp of having a brownout in major metropolitan parts of the northeastern United States. That would have gotten the public's attention big time and would have led to a whole hue and cry. The good news there, one of the reasons we didn't have that, is that nuclear power continued to operate 24-7, even in those low temperatures, providing that base of reliable power that we could count on, even when the temperatures got low and that affected gas, even when the wind uh, wasn't blowing quite the way we would hope, which would affect uh, wind power, nuclear was there uh, to keep the dependability in place. When you look overseas, sometimes you can uh, get some uh, some useful uh, facts. Again, uh, not just you know theoretical, but actually what people are doing. Uh, Chinese, 
in my country, uh, there's sort of mixed feelings about the Chinese. Uh, we trade with them. We buy a lot of uh, goods from China. We try and sell things there. We tend to be a little irritated when they um, borrow our intellectual property and do some other things. But one thing most Americans would not tell you is that the Chinese are foolish. And so when you look at how China is attempting to grow their economy at rapid rates of growth, but they've got terrible climate challenges there. They've actually had to shut down a lot of manufacturing in the greater uh, Beijing area because they have an international conference coming up and they want the, uh, uh, the, the air to be cleaner. It's so bad in Beijing right now. So uh, they are going on a crash course of building new nuclear plants. They're building coal as well and gas fire, but they're building a lot of new nuclear plants because the Chinese have concluded that if they're going to have cleaner air and economic growth, nuclear's got to be a part of that equation. You can look at Germany. The Germans, for domestic political reasons, some time ago decided, you know, we're going to get out of the nuclear business. We're going to just start shutting them down. And they have. They're now relying more on coal and more on natural gas, which is cleaner than coal but has a higher carbon footprint, puts out more CO2 than, than nuclear. What are the results for Germany? Germany is today emitting more CO2, and their consumers are paying more for their power. Uh, I can't speak for your province or for Canada, but I know where I'm from. People would probably not be thrilled with paying more and emitting more carbon. That's not the future that we would embrace. We can benefit from the German example if that's not uh, where we want to go uh, as well. The latest figures, I think, Duncan showed that it's about 9% uh, percent per kilowatt uh, for non-nuclear generation here in your province. It's about 6% for nuclear generation. So at a time when consumers are having to tighten their belts to make ends meet, asking them to pay more for their power supply when it's not necessary to meet your carbon goals may be something that consumers would understandably object to. So uh, let me tie all this together, Gordon, and then I'll do what I said and throw it open for questions. And one of the um, regrettable things, uh, Dalton and I were talking about this before we came in, one of the regrettable things in American politics today is that we are just so divided uh, it's almost as if our two political parties aren't from the same country, but from entirely different uh, countries, which is, and, and in our country, uh, it's almost as if the word compromise, which at one point was viewed as an act of statesmanship, oh, people trying to reconcile their differences, trying to work things out, trying to find common ground, that's a good thing. Today, for many involved in the political process, the notion of sitting down with those from a different political party and trying to uh, reach a compromise that has become viewed as an act, not of statesmanship, but of betrayal. How can you work with those people? How can you agree with them on anything? Don't you know that they're bad? We, we have to be just unrelentingly opposed to what they say and what they stand for, which in our system is rather odd, because there would not be a United States of America if there hadn't been some pretty substantial compromises struck at the Constitutional Convention that created our country. Big, comp big compromises. Um, but they did, and we look at the founders of our country as being statesmen. Uh, but today, uh, that's not the political climate. And I find that to be very regrettable, because if my nation and my state are going to meet the very real challenges in a dynamic and competitive world, and I suspect the same is true for Canada, we're going to have to find a way to have a robust, vigorous debate and disagree about things, but at the end of the day, try and work together. 
and to find those compromises that will enable us to move forward together. Because as a civil rights leader in my country uh, once said, uh, not all so many years ago, and I think the same is true for Canada, we may have arrived on these shores in different ships, but we're all in the same boat now. So it's incumbent upon us to work together to find those practical answers that will actually enable our people to realize the dream that generations of Canadians and generations of Americans have always cherished. And that's through hard work and ingenuity and fortitude to forge a better way of life, not just for themselves, but for our children and our grandchildren. And I'm pleased to be here today to share a few words about that with you. Again, I'm grateful for your hospitality and would be happy to answer any questions you might have. Thank you. Now, I would only ask if you're a member of the uh, media that you identify yourself so I, <laughs> I can know before. I've learned from a hard, uh, hard experience to always ask, uh, are there any reporters here? That's my question. So, yes, yes, sir, what's your question? Uh, Senator, I'm not a, a member of the press, uh, but just a retired citizen. Um, one thing you didn't cover, and it seems to me is a major uh, problem, is nuclear waste. Um, I, I'm totally behind uh, nuclear power and that sort of thing, but I think we have to address the question of nuclear waste and how we dispose of that in a safe manner. That's my question. Excellent question, and you're exactly right. Uh, it is one of those issues that has to be addressed, and fortunately there's a pretty good way to do it. Uh, you can look at the French, for example. I think something like 90% of the power generated in France happens to come from nuclear, very high figure. And what the French do is they reprocess uh, the waste, which reduces the amount you have to dispose of by about 90%. Uh, Duncan and I were talking earlier today. You can actually then use some of that, uh, reuse some of the reprocessed material to generate even further power. And the French have uh, stored the remnant, the very small remnant that remains, in a very uh, safe, environmentally responsible way for decades and decades and decades. And so I don't know whether this would resonate with uh, a Canadian audience, but in my country, in my state, if I said something to an audience like this, I said, if the French are wise enough to figure this out, surely we can too. That would be pre pretty persuasive where I come from. <laughs> so it's a great question, absolutely has to be done. And fortunately, there are you know, good examples around the world, not just the French, but other other places where they've done exactly exactly that. We have sort of a... Uh, we have a system in my country that you would not, uh, I don't commend you. It's the result of political uh, dysfunction more than anything. But uh, there are examples out there other than the United States of, you know, very good ways to deal with exactly that, that issue. Another question? Uh, yes, uh, yes, back here. Uh, thank you, Senator. Not a member of the media, but I do try to get uh, them to write some of the stuff I say from time to time, but they're usually reluctant. A member of the PC caucus, and as you uh, may know, uh, we've been very strong supporters of nuclear for many, many years and continue to be. It's hard to isolate one jurisdiction when it comes to support of nuclear. And one of the things that we watch very closely is what's, what's going on in the United States when it comes to the development of new nuclear. Could you provide some kind of an update as to where you are, not just in the Great Lakes region that you know we're part of, but in, in the nu new nuclear development in general in the United States, after Three Mile Island, it went dead because there was, you know, there's that uh, 
uh, that uh, misinformation and fear factor that uh, had, the, had the effect on the politicians. But where are we today with regards to the development of new nuclear in the United States? Because, as you say, two-thirds of the emission-free power is coming from nuclear. What, where are we going to be down the road uh, in the United States? Thank Boy, that's you. a great question. And uh, to give you a little background, in the United States today, if you first of all, there's just a lot of, as I mentioned, people don't think about this. It's uh, understandable. They can flip the switch and rely upon it. And so if you ask people's uh, opinion about nuclear power, you'd get a lot of, don't know, interesting, tell me more. Uh, but uh, the opinion polls do show that for the people who do have an opinion, it is uh, significantly more popular than unpopular nuclear power. And when you talk to them about uh, the attributes and some of the alternatives, uh, it's even more popular. So people love renewables, wind and solar. Uh, the, the low price of natural gas has been helpful to our economy in many ways. But people are actually very positively predisposed toward uh, nuclear power. The gentleman asked about waste. Uh, there are some, uh, you have to be able to answer that question. You know, obviously, safety has to be something that you address, and there have been significant new investments uh, in that. Interestingly enough, uh, the power tends to be most popular in the local communities where it's located, and that's not just because of the jobs and the tax base and all that sort of thing, but you know, those folks, if there were any safety concerns at all, you'd think the people who would be most worried about that would be the folks living right next to the plant. But because they're there, they see it operate 24-7, they know about all the redundant safety uh, uh, features that have been put into place, they tend to be very uh, supportive. So that's a long uh, uh, build-up to saying in the United States there are currently a couple of new, new reactors under construction, one in Georgia and one in South Carolina. Uh, and so in those jurisdictions it's viewed uh, in very positive terms. It tends to, we have, we have a mixed system in our country. Some is more regulated, and in those jurisdictions, it's easier for plants to get up and running. In those that are not regulated by the state, the province, where it's just fully, uh, you know, a market-based system, a little harder there because the spot price, the price of the moment tends to drive investment decisions, which since nuclear has a long lead time, over a 50-year or 60-year period, nuclear is very, very inexpensive, very, very competitive. But if you're asking if you had to amortize all those costs over one, two, three, four years, you know, you can't do it. So uh, two new plants under construction, and we're really focused now on trying to preserve the existing fleet that we have because there's no way to meet our environmental goals. If you start taking off of line, uh, you can't replace that 20% uh, of our electric uh, generation with renewables fast enough. It's just not possible you're going to see, a, just like Germany, you will see a higher CO2 footprint. So short answer to your question, two new plants going up. And I suspect, although the debate is not about this now, I suspect as our state legislatures, uh, legislators, a lot like you, know, you here in the province, come to grips with some of the tough decisions they're going to have to make. Higher carbon standards, can't use coal so much anymore. Do we want to become just totally dependent on gas? Uh, my guess is that you may see more making similar decisions as to those that were made in South Carolina and Georgia, and you may see more uh, new nuclear capacity, but that's a longer-term development. So two today, my guess is you'll probably see a few more tomorrow, but right now the debate in the states is what do we do about keeping the, uh, the current genera nuclear generation capacity that we have because of the adverse consequences if we just allowed it to go away. that respond to your, respond to your question? Thank you for asking. Uh, yes, yes, sir. Yes, I'm not a member of the media, but I'll identify myself anyway. Michael from Siemens. Michael Cobes there from Siemens. Oh, great. Uh, the Are you an engineer? No, no, I'm, no, I'm not. 
Oh, I was hoping you might. I'm a lawyer. Not, not smart enough to be an engineer. I, both my wife and I are lawyers. Engineers do something useful. So I was hoping you might be might be one of those. But, but the uh, the environmental movement, uh, I guess it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but uh, in many cases they see nuclear power as part of the solution, and I, I feel uh, that's the case here. Certainly everybody in this room probably feels that way. But in different jurisdictions, the environmental movement you know, sees, sees uh, nuclear power as, as, as part of the problem, uh, such, as, such as Germany. Uh, can you speak to, in the United States, how that movement views nuclear power and if that's at all influencing the, uh, the lack of take-up? Excellent question. So uh, in, uh, the organization that uh, I'm heading up, I'm heading it up with Nuclear Matters along with uh, Judd Gregg, who's a former Republican governor from New Hampshire and also a three-term United States senator, a really fine person. Uh, the reason I mention that is that uh, you know, we're trying to work in a bipartisan way to address this issue, and we formed an advisory committee. So we have representatives of business, labor. We also intentionally included some leading environmentalists. Carol Browner, who's the former head of the EPA, a Democrat, very, very uh, progressive environmentally, is on the advisory board. Some of the leading climate, uh, climatologists, uh, the leading scientists who've been forecasting the adverse effects of CO2 emissions and global climate change, have also, not on the advisory board, but have, through their published uh, uh, publications, have embraced nuclear because they understand that part of the environment, the, the part of the environmental community that's interested in practical solutions, things that are legislatively doable or economically doable, get the carbon down, deal with climate change, but in a way that's consistent with economic growth and can be done in a pluralistic society, they have embraced nuclear as part of the answer because they know you just can't get from here to there without it. Now, there are some in the environmental movement for whom this is a religious issue, and they're not entirely fact-based, and um, you know, it's more difficult if it's a religious question to you know, have a, have a you know, reasoned debate. So there are those out there who are just you know, dead opposed who would say we can do 100% wind, 100% solar, 100% hydro, but that's just not, you know, that's just not realistic. Uh, I would be lying to you if I told you that I thought it were. And so the people who are actually in the process uh, of not just, you know, making speeches and writing articles, but actually making decisions that have to work for your constituents, they know. Th that element of the environmental community knows that nuclear needs to be part of the answer. And so in our country, big chunk are supportive of nuclear. Some, you know, on the sort of religious side of things, no. No Donald Trump questions, boy. I'm gonna, <laughs> boy, am I, boy, am I relieved. And I don't, I don't, uh, I don't, uh, I don't know what Donald's opinion on this issue would be anyway. But uh, <laughs> by the way, I will tell you, I, I was mentioning this to a group of your legislators I met with earlier. So immigration, you know, he kind of got started by you know the, the immigration issue in our country, and he, and along with some of his um, colleagues who are seeking the nomination of their party, have promised to build a wall on the southern border of the United States, separating the United States from Mexico to deal with the immigration issue there. I recently had someone tell me that if Mr. Trump is elected president of the United States, he'll need to construct a wall uh, separating the United States from Canada as well. And I said, why? He said, well, the southern wall will be built to keep the Mexicans from coming in. The northern wall will be uh, built to keep the Americans from going out. Because <laughs> somebody that might be alarmed by that uh, prospect. So we'll, we'll see. Yeah, David Romano with Society of Energy Professionals. Um, I'll admit I am an engineer. 
Oh, good. I also admit that I don't always understand them. Um, my question is, I, I, I see from the report that there's no nuclear in Indiana. Um, have there been attempts to, to build nuclear? And if so, what seem to be the roadblocks? Or what seem to be the, the issues that, uh, um, for example, Indiana was in, uh, is not, does not have nuclear? The reason that my state uh, does not have uh, nuclear power, and there was uh, an attempt before my time, uh, and the governor that uh, preceded me, the, the regulatory commission ended up, they started and then they stopped. They were potential cost overruns and that sort of thing. It became politically uh, an issue because of the, the, the cost overruns. But candidly, in my state, uh, I'd say 96 or 7 percent of the power generated in Indiana comes from coal because we have coal in Indiana, and it tends to be high BTU coal. Unfortunately, it also tends to be high sulfur coal. So the path of least resistance for my state for the longest time has just been to use coal. Now, because of the concern about CO2 and climate change, you know, we, along with others, are having to change our attitude about this. But it's because we had a cheap, plentiful, local supply of coal that really kept any other energy source from being seriously considered. And now the world has changed. Senator, um, um, perhaps another question. Uh, I, I'm a Georgian bear, uh, the sixth Great Lake, and I'm wondering uh, what the impact may be in the uh, as we develop these uh, uh, plants on the water quality uh, that area. Uh, I, I'm sure you've had committees, and I think there's a Great Lakes um, uh, International Committee that. Um, uh, has an agreement that was signed in 1903, I think, or 1905. Um, but uh, it's sort of a generalized question if you've had any uh, feeling about uh, the Great Lakes. It's an important element of our province, and uh, we have 20% of the world's fresh water, and uh, uh, damage to that could be significant. Of course. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned, uh, we're quite, quite proud to be a Great Lakes state in Indiana, too. Uh, for those of you who have not uh, visited the northern part of my state, uh, the uh, Indiana Dunes National Park uh, is remarkable. There are 15, 20-foot-high sand dunes in the state of Indiana, uh, right there on the shores of Lake uh, Michigan. And it's a wonderful uh, amenity for the people of my state. So we're very proud to share the Great Lakes uh, with you. Uh, to be quite honest, uh, to answer your question, sir, I don't know, but I'll give you my best uh, you know, uh, answer with the, the knowledge that I have. I get questions about safety issues. I get questions about uh, the storage issue, which you asked about previously. In all my travels, I've never had anyone raise a concern about the water quality. I suspect that that indicates it's probably not much of it. I've never heard that it's an issue. Duncan, you were an expert in this area. I've never. Uh, so if the plants are constructed uh, uh, you know, properly, uh, it shouldn't be an issue at all. And I would imagine that most new ones would not be in close proximity to the lakes anyway. Senator over here. I won't ask about Donald Trump, but I'll ask about the other presidential race involving Hillary Clinton and Bernie Saunders in your party. And the polls are showing now, surprisingly, Bernie Saunders is tied in Iowa and New Hampshire with, uh, with Senator Clinton. And how do you see that race unfolding? Will she be able to finally get the brass ring, 
or will we see another disappointment? Well, that's a great question. First, in the interest of full disclosure, I should tell you that uh, I served as governor with her husband and had been close to both uh, former President Clinton, and I sat in the Senate next to uh, Senator Clinton on the uh, uh, Hillary on the Armed Services Committee, and so I'm, I'm close to both of them. I am supporting her, so you should know that as I answer your question. Uh, so I think what's going on with both, uh, and, and her campaign has had some challenges with this email controversy and all of that, but I think what's going on a little more deeply uh, than that is on both in both my party and in the Republican Party, uh, there is a, uh, a significant dissatisfaction with the establishment, with politics as usual. I mentioned Congress's job approval rating is 15 percent. The president's job approval is significantly higher than that, but is in the 40s. That's what we call being underwater. He is, his unpopularity rating is higher than his popularity rating. When asked the question in the last couple of weeks, do you trust anyone in politics? You know, forget Mrs. Clinton, anyone. 72% said, no, we don't trust any of them. And so there's just, and I think in our country, maybe some in Canada too, uh, for the last 10 years, if you look at the average wage uh, for uh, the, the typical family, uh, average household income in the United States, for a decade, it's been stagnant slightly down. And so there's a lot of pent-up economic frustration, anxiety, and uh, they look at Washington, they see all the political infighting, all the gridlock. We elect these people. They're not doing anything to help people like me. Enough already. Throw the bums out. Bring in someone new. And in the Republican Party, the, the three leading candidates in the most recent poll, Donald Trump, uh, the neurosurgeon Ben Carson, and Carly Fiorina, uh, totaled about 60-some percent of the vote. None of them have served a day in public office, local, provincial, or federal. None. Zero. And so you can kind of see that going. So I think she's suffering some from that. Uh, there are some in my party who would say that she is insufficiently liberal. Bernie would benefit from that because he is, you know, he, he kind of on the most liberal aspect of the Democratic Party spectrum. And so I think she suffers, uh, but both of those things are helping uh, him to a certain extent and hurting her. Although he's been a, you know, a lifelong politician, he's not exactly an establishment figure. And so I think both of those are helping him and hurting her. That said, my best guess is that at the end of the day, she will be my party's nominee and that our presidential race will be f about 50-50. It will be very close for reasons we can discuss if you're interested. Uh, and the reason I feel that way is I think, you know, if you look back, there's a long history of so-called protest candidates doing very well a year before an election or six or nine months before the election. People are mad. They go, I'm going to vote for the – I'm going to send them a message. I'm going to send them a message by voting for – you know, this person or that person. When it gets right down to it, though, a majority of people not only want to send a message, but understand that electing a president of the United States is a profoundly uh, important act. And I think that will ultimately inform their judgment. So uh, I think she will be my party's nominee. She may lose Iowa. She may lose New Hampshire. You don't know. They'd be close. Uh, but I think she has the uh, infrastructure, the staying power, the support, and ultimately the experience that people will look for in a future president of the United States. So that's my best uh, judgment. But, uh, uh, boy, the, uh, the campaign season to date has unfolded in ways that I never could have, uh, never could have predicted. And uh, you, just, you just never know. I mean, the Italians elected Silvio Berlusconi a few times. So, I mean, things, things can uh, happen. Uh, this is not an off-color joke. I wouldn't do that in public. But with regard to him, uh, 
uh, someone was once, he was, the, the joke goes that a Berlusconi was once asked, uh, and with his background, he, I don't think he'd be elected in the United States, but uh, no, they, they took a poll. They took a poll of Italian women, and they asked, uh, uh, have you had uh, relations with Silvio Berlusconi? And a third of the women in Italy said, were insulted by the question and said, no, uh, I'm insulted you would ask. A third said uh, uh, that they had. And the other third said, what, again? <laughs> so so uh, sometimes the unexpected can happen, and a Berlusconi-type figure can win, but I suspect not... Uh, I suspect eventually it will be Mrs. Clinton and probably a more mainstream, for lack of a better term, Republican. I'm getting the high sign here. Nobody, no other quick, okay, well, again, uh, thank you very much. I appreciate your hospitality and look forward to, uh, to getting to talk to some of you after we're done. Thank you so much. Thank you, Senator. I'd like to now call on the Honorable Dalton McGinty to express our uh, collective appreciation. Dalton. Distinguished uh, head table guests, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm uh, particularly pleased to uh, see so many of my colleagues from the legislature here today, uh, but especially my uh, friend Bob Shirelli, who uh, continues to impress with his uh, deft management of a very challenging file, energy, and coincidentally one of those biggest challenges is sitting to his immediate left. Um, I also want to take this opportunity, Duncan, to say to you and all the good folks with whom you partner at Bruce uh, and all those who are connected with the nuclear industry in Ontario that uh, we could never have achieved the goal that we'd set for ourselves, which was an ambitious one, Senator, which was to eliminate the use of all coal. We could never have achieved that if nuclear had not stepped up to the, uh, to the plate for us uh, and done a lot of the heavy lifting, so I'm very grateful for that. Senator, in, um, in uh, preparing uh, for my very brief remarks, I, I went online and uh, I discovered a few things that we have in common. We're both born in 1955. We both have our father's names. We were both trained as lawyers, but we both heard the call of public service. And in that regard, we both followed in our father's footsteps. I learned something else today that we have in common. and Perhaps it's a little bit easier to see these things when we're a bit removed from the fray. So I really appreciated your words of wisdom cautioning us about the unfortunate decline of politics and the advent of excessive partisanship. There is nothing wrong with a healthy collision of ideas, but if we descend into dismissing the other because they are the other, or dismissing the other's ideas, that is indeed an unfortunate development. Senator, on behalf of all of us, I want to thank you for being here today. I certainly hope you got the sense that you are here among friends. I want to uh, thank you for reminding us of the invaluable role that nuclear energy plays not only in meeting our energy needs, but also our environmental and economic aspirations. I also want to take this opportunity to thank you for your commitment to public service and for your exemplary service to the good people of Indiana. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much, Dalton. And uh, by the way, wonderful to have you back at the Empire Club. It's been a long time. And uh, thank you to our, our guest speaker, a wonderful speech. And, I, and Senator, I can honestly tell you, I don't think we've ever had more members of our provincial legislature in one room at the Empire Club meetings. So uh, I think that shows how interested everyone is in, in looking at alternative forms of energy. So thank you so much for being here. And thank you to our generous sponsors, uh, Bruce Power, the Council of the Great Lakes Region, and Provincial Building and Construction Trades Council of Ontario for sponsoring our event today. I'd also like to thank the National Post as our print media sponsor and Rogers Cable as our television sponsor. Uh, please follow us, ladies and gentlemen, on Twitter at Empire underscore Club and visit us online at EmpireClub.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And we're looking forward to welcoming you back in the weeks to come. We've got an extraordinary lineup over the fall. Uh, September 22nd, in a week or so, we're going to be uh, looking at Women Who Lead, and we have three uh, leading CEOs, female CEOs from Toronto coming in to look at have women actually been able to change the landscape in the uh, corner office over the last 10 years or not, or do the same issues persist in different forms. David Plouffe will be with us the following day, September the 23rd. He's one of the founders and key advisors to Uber and also a uh, former key advisor to President Barack Obama. Uh, Rachel Notley will be here on October 2nd, uh, giving her first major address outside of Alberta to uh, what uh, is being referred to in Alberta now as the Bay Street investment crowd. So we're looking, we're looking forward to welcoming her here at the Empire Club. And she'll be followed uh, three days later by our own premier, Kathleen Wynne, on October 5th, who uh, has a number of things that she wants to address. And uh, on, a, on December the 8th, a unique opportunity at the Empire Club to hear the governor of the Bank of Canada looking at our financial uh, portrait as a country. So thank you all for your attendance today, ladies and gentlemen. I see a lot of hungry-looking people, so this meeting is now officially adjourned. Enjoy your lunch. Thank you.